Trust is at an all-time low. Trust in businesses, institutions, public leaders, and even in individuals seem to be broken beyond repair. Dr. David Miller, director of the Princeton University Faith and Work Initiative, has searched the world's wisdom traditions for ways to repair trust. Join us for a fascinating look at the principles that can restore and strengthen trust on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? We are very pleased today to be joined by uh, Dr. David Miller, uh, who is the director of the Princeton University Faith and Work Initiative, uh, an extraordinary thinker. Uh, We had a chance to uh, interact with uh, Dr. Miller as he was over in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum uh, not too long ago. Uh, Dr. Miller, thanks again for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Great to be back with you. So your your work is just so fascinating to me uh, as you look at this idea uh, towards a restoration of trust, preliminary insights and lessons from wisdom traditions. Uh, trust is just such a, a fascinating thing in our world today. It's something that seems to be declining our, our trust in institutions. Uh, and sadly, I think it's also fraying the fabric of society now. Uh, but give us just a little backstory on that. What is it that led you to, to study this and what are some of the things that you're learning as you continue to march forward? So one of the, the courses I, I teach uh, at my university, which sort of has brought some of the original thinking, is it's a business ethics course, and I, I look at the role of, uh, in fact, the, the official name is Business Ethics and Modern Religious Thought. So as you know, in academia, there's very dry titles, and the students have a, a nickname for the course. They called it How to, How to Succeed Without Selling Your Soul. So... Uh, <laughs> But it got me thinking, and there's a lot of research both in academic journals as well as uh, the uh, polling organizations and other media sources talking about the, an issue of trust and a declining trust, in particular declining trust in, in institutions, be they the government, be they uh, corporations, even religious institutions. So there's there's a concern, and when trust break, breaks down, it impacts ethics, it impacts a lot of things. So it, that, that just began to get on my mind. How do we think about trust? What are the conditions for trust? And even more important, when, when trust is broken, when it's breached, how do we, how do we uh, can we even, and how do we try to restore it or rebuild it? So, so let's, uh, let's start to take a, a dive into that. So as you look at that, as you mentioned, that trust in organizations today, uh, again, whether that's government, whether that's religious organization or business, uh, what are some of the things that are, are causing that? And then, of course, I want to dive into uh, what we actually do about that, whether that's a restoring trust or just strengthening trust as we move on. Yeah. But, you know, there's probably several variables that, that are causing uh, this, this crisis of trust, as, as one uh, article put it. Uh, it was talking specifically about the, the business community, but the same question could be raised, as I mentioned, for other parts of society. Uh, I, I think one of the, the variables that, that's causing this uh, suspicion or breakdown in trust is, is organizations, all organizations are moving at such a rapid pace. I mean, even think, you know, your industry of, of media, and, and we're going so fast that sometimes mistakes, innocent mistakes happen or there are unintended consequences for things we're doing where we make a decision uh, in the heat of the moment only later to realize that we hadn't fully thought it through. So the, the pace of life is quicker, and like uh, race car drivers going around the, the curve at a, at a faster speed than they're used to, sometimes we spin out. So, so I think that's one one issue. Um, another is there's there's just a broader sense of um, suspicion. Uh, people 
can smell a fraud or smell inauthentic, lack of authenticity, mm-hmm. or if you're being played, people, people are just more and more media savvy. And uh, whether it's believing an advertisement or a claim that a public figure makes, there's a, it's almost an environment of suspicion that we've, we have probably subconsciously cultivated. And in some cases with good reason, because there are people who are uh, trying to spin bad news as if it were good news and people get tired of that yeah i think there is a an exhaustion out there for sure people are longing for that uh, that authenticity uh, i think you're absolutely correct in that uh, i think we've gotten better at kind of sniffing it out what is authentic and real and and what is not it does require of leaders this ability to uh, to have that courageous vulnerability that seems to be something that's lacking have you seen any of that play out in, in your research and in your interaction with the organization around the world are, are is anyone doing this well at this point I think there are I think a lot of people are there are obviously different kind of leaders with different styles and, and a lot of research will have different sort of prototypes or or uh, exemplars of the ideal leader and the reality is I, I don't think there is an ideal leader that people have different strengths and weaknesses and natural styles but, but one common threat that I do see through through different scholars and research that has been done is that that uh, it, it's a myth to think that as a leader you have to have the answer to everything. In fact, the leader who says sometimes they have to be appropriate, you can't sound incompetent, but, right, but right. to sometimes say, you know, I, I'm not quite sure we how, how we solve this problem. This is a deep, intractable problem that no one has solved for the past uh, years, decades, or maybe even millennia. So, but let's put our best minds on it and try to figure it out. So leaders who genuinely are seeking guidance and who without looking incompetent can say, you know, I'm just not quite sure. I mean, I have ideas, but let's work on this together as a team. Yeah. That's when you can have some exciting breakthroughs. And, and frankly, I think uh, the, the rank and file, they, they respect that. And if, if anything, that, that builds trust because everybody knows that leaders don't know everything, just like I don't know everything, others don't. So I think that helps the, this this trust if, if, if a leader is willing to be a little bit vulnerable. Yeah, I, th- I think that's so important. I, and I've been wanting to ask you this since we uh, spoke when you were still over in Davos, Switzerland. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But this sure. this idea of, uh, of the trust that you're talking about, the transparency practices that are so important in building that trust, uh, I wanted to get, ask you about this idea that it seems that, again, in business, in politics today, Uh, everything has become much more transactional and much less of relationship driven. So everything is just kind of one transaction after another. You don't really have a relationship with anybody, uh, which tends to break down trust. It talks uh, the ethics uh, in politics. You see it as leaks coming out of uh, inner circles because everything's just a transaction. What are you seeing in that space? Yeah, that's a a great way to to frame it, the the difference between a transaction and a relationship. Uh, And more and more of the world, there's less face-to-face contact and things are all done on screen. So you could have, uh, let's say, a bank, a a trader in in Hong Kong dealing with a trader in London who's dealing with a trader in New York and they're trading whatever securities or foreign exchange or commodities or instruments. And and they don't know who Fred or Sally or Tom or who their counterpart is. They they don't see them. They don't uh, get together for a coffee or something uh, after work they they they're just they're just numbers uh the transactions and when we depersonalize certain things we, we our, our conscience isn't as aware if we're about perhaps to injure someone there's some interesting studies of uh if the, the, that the people will be more ethical and less inclined to do something bad or more inclined to do something altruistic or good if they see the face of the person if they know them 
So I think that makes a huge, a huge difference. So important. I, I want to dive into some of the specifics of your uh, your research now of this restoration of trust. Obviously, trust does get broken or breaks down uh, in relationships, in organizations, in communities. And uh, you've you've really taken this on uh, from the perspective of wisdom traditions. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and then I want to talk about some of the specifics in terms of how do you restore trust, how do you strengthen trust. I was talking to some folks and who weren't in, in sort of business people about this question of, of trust. And, and uh, I said, you know, this may sound crazy, but, but there might be some fresh ways to think about that if, if we look at the wisdom literature found in different religious traditions. And I said, what do you mean? And I said, well, if there's one thing that religion is, as a generalization, is, is very good at is it recognizes human brokenness, it recognizes human failures, it, it recognizes that we make mistakes, that knowingly or unwittingly we can injure or hurt or disappoint or break trust with someone. And as you say, it could be at a, a, a personal, family, marital relationship level, it could be within a community, it could be between a person and their God, that, that, there's a, that, we, that, that we have a breakdown, a break of trust, that we've, we've done something wrong. But each is many religious traditions have a path back to healing, to wholeness, to getting right uh, with God, if you will, getting right with uh, a spouse or a neighbor or an institution. But there's a pathway towards healing. It's a pathway back towards wholeness. That, that you're not forever condemned in this place of, of, of no longer being deemed trustworthy. So that just really intrigued the folks that, my gosh, and, and we got to think, well, that tends to be often on a personal level, which led to the question, can you take some of these these ideas that come from these religious traditions and what's often called wisdom literature and transpose that from a personal level to an institutional level? So if an institution is the, or the entity that's broken the trust with its various stakeholders, clients, employees, regulators, et cetera, how do you, uh, shareholders, whatever it might be, how do you... How can an, can an institution learn something from from these wisdom literatures? And and I came to the conclusion, well, yeah, they they, they could. So it's a, it's a fresh way of thinking about an old problem instead of just relying on lawyers or PR firms and public relations and advertisements and spin doctors. Well, maybe dig deep because that's what religions tend to do. They they dig deep and they get right. real. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I think you've identified such a critical component in that so often when trust is broken, it's sort of the, uh, you know, distract, distort and uh, redirect <laughs> Uh, kind of that master yeah. of, of spin, uh, rather than one, the courageous vulnerability to say, hey, we made a mistake or we did this. Uh, but one of the one of the things that you uh, mentioned in our conversation when you were over in Davos, Switzerland, is this idea of using rituals uh, as part yeah. of the way to restore trust. Tell us more about that. First, let me just make a general comment. One of the things we, we try to make clear in this paper, and, and this was done uh, with my co-author and colleague, uh, Michael Tate, uh, uh, so I want to make sure I uh, mention that. Uh, uh, but one of the things that we quickly realized, and I think it has to be this way for the corporate space, is this paper is not about religiosity. Right. Uh, it's about wisdom. It's about truth. So if you could find wisdom from a scientist, from a poet, from an artist, from a, a, a holy text, Truth is truth. Wisdom is wisdom. That's right. So we're, we're not trying to argue or make a case for any particular religious tradition, but rather honoring and respecting that wisdom can be found, uh, uh, bits of truth can be found in many different places in, in, uh, in, in life, and this is just one of them. So that, I just want to put that up. That, Definitely. That up front. So and important. We looked at the, 
Yeah, and we, we looked at the, we focused on the three Abrahamic traditions and asked what does Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have to think about this, uh, and we, we uh, had some other uh, traditions as well. So I just mentioned that as a positioning to the comments. So, in fact, one of the comments we, speaking with um, a scholar who is uh, from, from Kenya, Another point, by the way, we made sure that we had people that we interviewed or met with scholars of religion and some other fields from around the globe. So it wasn't just a Western view, but we made sure we had views from, from different continents as well, which enriched the conversation. And she said, this scholar from Kenya, she said, you know, in, in, in my country, the when there is a breach between two different tribes or peoples or organizations, there's a path towards healing, and it often involves a ritual. It involves something that that is done both by the offending entity or tribe or person, as well as the, uh, not just the offender, but the offendee. And they have some certain steps that they go through to heal and come back together. There's not a denial of what went wrong. There's actually an embrace of it uh, and then a path towards forgiveness, repentance, and reconnection. And that just struck me. So if a religion, if a, if a ritual is not just going through the motions and kind of fall asleep and nod our head if we're in a house of worship and we do a ritual. But if it's real authentic and real, what, what would a ritual look like in a corporation? Could we transpose this idea into an institution? And how might one learn from that? And in corporate speak, we might say practices. What, mm-hmm. what practices could we cultivate that uh, give a pathway internally and externally uh, to, to begin to rebuild trust. I love that as a concept, and uh, for our, our listeners, there are so many different ways to a- apply this. And, uh, you know, I, I often say that uh, that which we ignore or forget, our children may never know, and what our children do not know, our grandchildren will never possess. And I think that's true in the corporate space as well, that these these rituals are a way of reminding us who we are uh, and reminding mm. what principles, what truths, as you say, uh, really ground us in this organization, whether that's a mission, a vision, a set of, uh, of guiding principles. Are there other ways that you've seen organizations use rituals to build trust? Because I, I really feel like if, if people forget those core principles of whatever the organization is, if they forget those, they're in danger of, of losing a whole lot else in, in terms of, of that trust and that ability to execute together. One way to do that is, in fact, well, actually, you know, coming, like you just said that story about passing through the generations of who we are. It's, you know, it's not just who we are, but who we want to be, mm, who we strive yes. to be, how do we be our best self. Right. So, and often there's a there's a, a gap, isn't there, between who we are and who we wish we were, <laughs> yes. who we hope to be. And, and I'm not saying silly things like I wish I could be like Michael Jordan or something and play basketball better, but, but more of the, my character, my my humanity, the way I treat my neighbor. Uh, that that we're, we probably often fall short, myself included, of, of who we wish we are. So, but I think that's important. And, and religious traditions also have this wisdom of reminding us to to aspire to be in many traditions that might be called more closely created in the image of God. And so what does that look like? What, is it, what does that mean? So I, I, in fact, in the, in the paper, we talked about ideals. So what's, what's an organization's ideal? What's its telos? What's its purpose? What's its mission? Uh, and what's the gap between where we are there and how that and where we want to go? I think that's, um, 
that was one of the, the, the theses where these sort of 11 theses that, that we came up with in the paper drawing the religious ideas that, that could be, that corporations could be asking themselves those, those same questions. I want to go, uh, I want to go back. We talked a little bit uh, early on in terms of kind of the uh, transactional versus relationship. Uh, you have it framed in, yeah. in one of, of your uh, 11 uh, elements there that lasting change is guided by a move away from contractual mindset towards a covenantal mindset. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, and by the way, these 11 theses, these aren't a, a prescription or a formula. That if you do this one, it's not a 12 step life, thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, life is wonderful. Uh, and to some extent, they might build upon each other, but, but they're very interrelated. And at the end, we have 10 questions that we, we, we invite organizations to ask of themselves which of these 11 theses might be really a breakthrough way of thinking for them, or where might they start, or what order might they do them in. And so it, it's meant as suggestions. It's not a formula. I just want to make yes. that, that clear. And one of them, as you mentioned, is this, this idea of moving from a contractual mindset towards a, a covenantal mindset. So what do we mean by that? Well, contracts, of course, they're, they're sort of legal. It's a legal way of viewing the world. It's a legal mindset that, that you, you uh, if it's not in the contract, it's the, letter, you know, it's the letter of the law that matters. Whereas the covenantal mindset moves us more towards the spirit of the law. So we're not arguing or suggesting that we need to get rid of law and contracts because that's the way the world is. We still need to, to do that. But but a covenantal mindset comes out of religious thinking, that, that there's a sense that with, with God or one's maker, whatever language one frames or uses in one's tradition, that there's a, there's an understanding, there's a mindset of trust, of confidence, there's a covenant. There's It's not a, a legal relationship, it's a covenantal one, where there's expectations, there's paths to heal if the covenant gets broken. And it's a different way. It's you know, some of the religious texts talk about the the law being written on our heart. It's sort of an internalized way of being. It's who we become. And how could a company do that? How could it move into a covenantal mindset? Well, that might involve doing more than is expected of them, and not just following the letter of the contract they've signed. But what was the spirit of it, and how how can a company do more? And it, which opens up all sorts of possibilities and freedoms, in fact, for people. That's that's so powerful. I want to hit as we uh, come towards the the end of the program today that you you talk about this idea that you you have to embrace that uh, that people are fallible and this is always an interesting one because uh, we we see this in in again organizations we see it historically where we we have the ideal and then we have the the reality of of where we are and of course the challenge for any organization uh, institution or country for that matter is to bring their performance into alignment with the ideal. And just because the people may not be perfect, that doesn't mean that the ideal isn't the, the natural way to create a pull mechanism uh, rather than say, well, you know, so-and-so was a, was a horrible person, and so, you know, whatever they put into this company can't, can't be right, can't be good because they, they you know, made these mistakes or, uh, you know, let us down in this way. Uh, so how do you use that understanding of the fallibility of the humans in the organization uh, and yet still have this expectation and this ability to, to really uh, strengthen and stretch trust? I think what helps build, and, and we make the, we came to the, the presenting question of the, is the title of the sort of restoration of trust question mark, uh, preliminary insights and lessons from wisdom traditions. And as we got into it, it was a good question, but we ended up sort of concluding it wasn't the right question or, mm. because you can't really restore trust. Uh, uh, but what you can, be, because if you've been injured, that pain is never going to go away. You might begin to 
learn to deal with it and cope with it and move forward, but it's always going to be there. So what you can do is you could rebuild trust. So you rebuild a new trust. Instead of uh, restoring an old one, you rebuild a new one. And part of that is recognizing that people and institutions, and of course institutions are comprised of people, uh, make mistakes. And, and they're flawed. I'm flawed. We're all flawed in, in some varying degrees. So if there's an acknowledgement of that, I think that helps build credibility, which helps build trustworthiness, which helps rebuild trust in a new way. And to be sure that that trust, uh, that, that when one has a breach, uh, has to be acknowledged so that the offended parties can see that they recognize what's what's been done. In fact, we, we talk about in, in the paper, um, uh, even using it, almost a, a loaded phrase, but r- religious conversion, and we put yeah. quotes around the word conversion, and we didn't mean to a particular religious tradition, but, but a humbling moment when you realize, oh my gosh, I blew it, or we blew it. These humbling moments are when we have the opportunity to do one of two things, either to embrace the pain of that, the embarrassment mm-hmm. of that, maybe the shame of that, to own it, and then to to make a big decision which way you're going to turn after that. Are, are you going to just do more of the same? Because conversion, really, if you look at some of the um, original roots of that word in, in uh, Greek or Latin or Hebrew or other scriptures, it's, it's a turning around, it's a change of direction. Right. It's becoming something new. Uh, and again, I don't mean this in a religious or religiosity sense. It might be, but I don't mean that in this context. So how does a company take this humbling moment and lean into it to have a radical change towards mm. something good? And, and new. And oh, by the way, it's not easy. Throughout yeah. <laughs> this, we're not trying to say a piece of cake. Yeah. No problem. No problem. We'll have this done by Friday, right? We can check it off our to do <laughs> list. <laughs> exactly. Uh, In fact, uh, my colleague coined this phrase sort of stewarding the, uh, the, the passage of time. So, yeah, how do you that. cultivate and do this? And it may be a lengthy window of time, it yeah. may be years. That's right. And it's and, very tempting. You know, we can say, hey, you know, hey, I, I apologize. I fixed it. We're not doing it anymore. We're moving in a new direction. But you kind of have to lean into that pain. It may take years until uh, a consistent, uh, fresh new behavior that yeah. will finally give uh, people. And that some people will never give you a second chance. Sure. So that's that, the hope. And, and it's, it, it's so true. I mean, if we, if we ever want to be strong in our broken places, so to speak, it, it does uh, require a, uh, it's a big bite and a long chew. And uh, there's a lot of heavy lifting in between uh, in order to really build that. I remember going into a, an organization that had gone through a series of leaders and a really a series of, of broken promises and broken trust. And I remember standing in front of that group. And as I started to speak, I thought, I'm, I cannot ask these people to trust me. <laughs> and so I actually said that. I said, I said I'm not going to ask you to trust me. I'm going to ask you to watch what's next. And I'm going to invite you to engage with me on a path. And let's mm. let's see what we can do together. But it's a uh, it, it, you have laid you have laid out some brilliant principles and framed them in such a powerful way uh, that I think if people are really committed to that, they can they can really do something extraordinary. Therefore, what? Uh, Dr. Miller, I want to I want to wrap up. We always wrap up this show uh, with, I think, the the most important question, and that is the therefore what question. So pe- pe- <laughs> people have been listening to this for you know a little over twenty minutes now, and uh, as we come to the end, uh, I'm, I'm going to throw this question to you, and that is the the therefore what? What do you hope people think different? What do you hope they do different after uh, listening to this and, and learning about these principles today? Well, so yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Perhaps two, two things. One is to, to hit the pause button and slow down and 
perhaps if they're interested, genuinely interested, take this document. In fact, I'll tell you a brief story. One executive uh, looked at me and he, he, he said, um, David, I, I read your paper towards the restoration of trust. And he said, and then I read it a second time. And I said, uh-oh, it wasn't well written, I guess. And he said, and then I read it a third time. I said, oh, man, I'm in trouble. And, um, just, and I said, well, so, like, and? And he said, uh, said it was brilliant. So wait, what do you mean? He said, it, there's so many layers to it that I really had to slow down and absorb mm. it to think about it. And, and I don't mean that as a self-congratulatory point, but, but my point is that there's depth. Yeah. And my colleague, Michael Tate, and I were, were trying to do a, a thoughtful piece and not just a flyby and say the obvious uh, cliches and, and um, traditional things one might think. And, and he was struck by that. So I, my hope is that people slow down, read it carefully, but then in their organization, their entity, their, their business, whatever their institution is, maybe use it as a thought piece that the whole executive team reads it and they talk about it. Yeah. And to be sure, many parts, someone might say this is, it's just not our cup of tea. It's not our thing. Fine, throw it away. But but if they're intrigued of, of new sources of wisdom, ones they may not have thought, that they might take some of those ten questions at the at the end and see maybe if we even get one or two good ideas out of this, out of these eleven theses, uh, well, that's a good day at the office, and maybe you can help put them on a path towards rebuilding trust. Actually, that's a uh, that's a great day at the office in uh, in my view. Dr. David Miller, we <laughs> so appreciate you joining us. Again, the uh, paper is Towards a Restoration of Trust, Preliminary Insights and Lessons from Wisdom Traditions. Dr. David Miller and uh, his tag team partner on this, uh, Dr. Michael Tate, uh, really extraordinary thinking there. And again, uh, Dr. David Miller is the director of the Princeton University Faith and Work Initiative. Uh, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate your wisdom and insight. And uh, we have more conversations conversations yet to come. Well, that's great. Thank you. It's a delight to be with you. If anyone wants to read it, you can go to our website, which is faithandwork.princeton.edu, and you'll see it there somewhere. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on uh, Deseret.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?